Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. My name is Celeste Auger, and this story is called On the Bus. At half past eight, the bus finally left the station. The roads were soaked and had become slick, bright ribbons of reflected May light. Summer was waiting in the wings of a damp, begrudging Irish spring that refused to leave the stage. Mary McGonagall saw none of it, not the murmuration of starlings that ebbed over the abandoned dairy sheds on the outskirts of Galway City not the line of clouds that thinned at the edge of the expansive grey sky, not the platinum light that shone through the gap to illuminate the bright hoods of tourists who wandered out of their small box rooms for a taste of rain. She had sat on so many buses out this road over the past 18 years, since graduating with a higher certificate in business and starting her job as an assistant staff officer in the HR department, that she didn't even see the wind fling cherry blossoms out in front of the rows of identical brick houses. All Mary wanted was to get to Aragal Town, visit her unrecognisable and unremembering mother, and get back as quickly as possible. Her policy was to forget the past, let the future unfold as it did every day, keep the present predictable and within her control. The weather was the only thing that turned against her. But the dreary rain was reliable and returned most weeks to wash the colour out of her daily bus commutes across town to the office and her monthly trips to County Donegal. Material facts and the reality of things you could touch were what mattered in life. She had a younger sister living in Spain who she no longer saw, even on Skype, and her mother no longer recognised either of them. Her father had left when she was only five years old never to be heard of or mentioned again. Her only memory of him was of the single photo her mother had kept, him standing in front of Lyon's drapery in the blurry 1980s. And a mental image of a photo wasn't a memory at all. She sat up the front of the bus, as usual, and somewhere between Clermaris and Knock, the driver glanced back and said, I heard your boss is going to be on the tax defaulters list big time. Where did you hear that? Back in Gillespie's pub, they saw it on the internet. Doesn't mean it's true, she said. They lapsed back into silence. Mary thought of her office and of the audit that was due soon. There would be extra work getting all the information requests sorted in time. She would have to dig out any number of personnel files, redact, and then copy them. As she contemplated the audit, the seat across from her was taken by a fellow Donegal man, Colin, the same auditor who had sifted through their policies and procedures last year. As he settled into his seat, he glanced over and recognised her. Soft morning, he said. Heading home as well, I imagine. Colin was in or around the same age as her, maybe a few years older, early 40s. He had the kind of looks that made it hard to guess his age, and she reckoned he could pass for 30 in a dimly lit pub with a few drinks on board. Though the moustache he had grown in the past year was questionable. Nobody had told him that it didn't suit him. 
As far as she knew, he was still single. She had nearly swiped right on him once on Tinder before she realized who he was. His profile had listed his emergency action plan in the event of a zombie apocalypse. People said he was great crack on a night out, but that he kept it going long after the night had ended. She thought she had smelt Guinness on him last year when they stood together at the rolling files, exchanging overstuffed personnel folders. The whole time he stood next to her, she had blushed, as if he could know that she found him attractive. He had requested a smaller number of sample files than the usual bean counters, had asked easy questions about their procedures, and smiled while telling them he saw no need for any substantial changes to the way they dealt with their several hundred public sector employees. She was surprised to see him on a bus. Last year, he had driven a newish Audi. Going to see my parents, he said, though she hadn't asked. Once a month, whatever the weather. They wove north along the N17, the kilometres passing in consensual silence, a rarity in a public space in the west of Ireland. The roads were slick with rain, and gusts of wind occasionally forced the bus to swerve from side to side. Mary still contemplated the HR department and their upcoming audit, whether they would even have their requested information on file. Other work thoughts intruded too. Her annoyance with the executive board and how they wouldn't approve her proposal for the additional hours policy. And the fact that no one would tackle the lax way that staff were inducted. She had been at them for years to expand initial training, to cover more than the legal basics. Her boss was a close friend of the divisional manager. He could barely read a circular, let alone interpret a policy, and had gotten where he was thanks to connections and a childhood in the right schools. Who could she complain to? He is really good-looking, she thought, glancing at Colin, notwithstanding the moustache. The road conditions got worse the closer they drove to Donegal, and Sligo was nearly impassable. The river overtopped the walls at one point. Water ran down the road, so the bus slipped and lost grip, sliding slightly sideways along the inner bypass. What a drive, said Colin, then laughed. The assistant staff officer looked at him and couldn't figure out why this elegant man would take the bus. He obviously had money, he carried himself well, dressed far better than the average auditor, and had that soft look that men who work indoors sometimes got. Why the bus when he could drive his Audi, or better? Why endure this discomfort, the cramped seats, the chill, damp air, the regular stops for cranky old ladies and hungover students? But he only smiled. Apparently, he didn't mind, seemed content with his lot. He was quiet and kind. He seemed oblivious to the realities of this life. The same way, he had not seen the flawed HR procedures they had presented him with at the audit. He smiled his way through. What more could he offer the world? Oh, bollocks, said the bus driver. The bus stopped violently and nearly skidded sideways. Mary's handbag lurched to the floor and her lip balm rolled out. What a drive, Colin laughed again. We'll be lucky to get there in one piece. Well, you could have stayed at home, the driver grumbled. Nobody put a gun to your head. Ah, now, I'm no crack stuck on my own at home. I prefer to get out. Compared to the bus driver, he seemed dynamic and spirited, but the way he sat low in the fabric seat made him look as though he might fade into middle age soon enough. Mary got a whiff of whiskey as he turned and caught her looking at him. She felt sorry for him then, 
and quickly averted her eyes. If she were his girlfriend, maybe she could tell him to get rid of the mustache, or even shave it off herself. Girlfriend. She was well past using the term girl in any context. The gods had decided that she would live alone in her flat on Dominic Street, and he would live alone in whatever plush house he had bought, and the idea that their lives could intertwine like rom-com was absurd. In reality, love didn't happen neatly after a bus trip meet-cute, and the complications of living together, let alone building life with an attractive and compatible person, would make your stomach heave. Why did he get the long curly eyelashes and easy charm? Maybe it was his weakness for the drink, the way he seemed to lack a care in the world. My stop up ahead now, said Colin, standing up and holding on to the top of the seat as the bus swayed to the left. So he was from Ballyshannon. And for some reason, she thought of the upcoming audit and how ill-prepared the department was, how sloppy some of the records were, but not because of her. When the bus pulled away from the lone figure bent against the wind, these thoughts mingled with others. She longed to daydream of lingering touches, of love, of the kind of happiness that a romantic partner might bring. His girlfriend? Her bed was cold when she slipped into it. She depended on her trusty hot water bottle to cuddle to sleep. The flat was always damp and chilly, with its kitchenette tucked on the sitting room wall opposite her front door. Migraines plagued her after work. She could just about cook dinner. At night, she dreamt of HR problems, demanding staff, brainstorms. This life was making her lined and old-looking before her time, making her awkward and formal, as though she had a pole up her arse. She was always worried she would miss something, and a contract wouldn't go through in time, or someone wouldn't get paid that month. No one found her attractive, she knew and life passed unmarked by adventure, without affection. Her mother didn't even recognize her anymore. There was no space in her current life for love. Hold on tight there, missus, the driver said, more aquaplaning on the far side of Ballyshannon. She had ended up as an assistant staff officer in the public service without choosing it. She had simply fallen into it. HR had seemed to choose her, but she had no great love for it, or for serving the staff members. What did she believe was most important in her work? Being consistent, following established procedures, interpreting circulars with common sense, getting it right. She didn't have time for helping people. That was what nurses, psychotherapists, even teachers did. But most likely, they were too busy trying to pay the bills, managing their hidden ailments, and suffering work politics to dwell on their higher calling. Work was boring, and diligence paid off. The idealists with stars in their eyes and notions of how they could serve people soon lost hope and faded into other, less demanding areas. The bus driver went off route to avoid the flooded patches of road. Narrow, winding roads and steep turns led them past one-off houses of varying sizes, one with faux Georgian pillars, and the occasional grey shed. Maori looked out the window at the yellow-green landscape without seeing it. Suddenly, they stopped. Two cars had pulled over in front of them, and the drivers had gotten out to move a fallen rowan tree that blocked the road. A gust of wind made the rain swirl. A student and a couple of old men came up from the back of the bus and stood beside the driver. 
Not going to shift that easily, one of the old fellas said. They look like a couple of civil fucking servants trying to organize a piss-up in James's gate, said the other. The bus driver threw a look over at Mary, then at the old man. Sorry, the old fella said, glancing over at her. Didn't mean anything by it. Did he mean the swearing or the slur on public servants? She couldn't tell. Don't worry, the student muttered. I seen her around at home, she's sound enough. But it didn't matter. The tree was moving inch by inch, and the old man got off the bus to help direct proceedings while the student rolled up his sleeves and heaved the trunks towards the other men pulling the tree by the branches. They ducked their heads against the thick, soft rain. Mary went back to thinking about which objective grounds could cover a contract for a staff member doing extra hours, and how to tell the caretakers they couldn't claim pay for their lunch breaks. Eventually, the rain-soaked men piled back on the bus, and they drove slowly around the branches that stuck out onto the road. Did you hear about the teachers? The bus driver asked her. What they're after asking for? No, what? Apparently, they want more money again on top of what they already earn, and longer summer holidays. Three months isn't enough for them. Lazy, greedy gits. That's ridiculous. I doubt they're asking for more holidays. The money part she couldn't be sure of. The driver obviously didn't believe Mary, long-serving public servant that she was. Nor would the men further back. They always slurred public servants of any type, whether teachers or clerical officers or assistant staff officers or civil servants and council office staff of any grade. People like that believe that people like her earn too much money without actually working for it. That she was on the make somehow. That she could take unlimited days off with no repercussions. They didn't see the responsibility she held. And management was the same. Thinking that support staff needed to be monitored closely, otherwise the work wouldn't get done. If only those busybodies would stay out of her way, stop calling meetings and demanding she account for every moment of her time, Mary could possibly get through some of her would-be-good-to-do list instead of always fighting fires. Sometimes it seemed she spent her days cleaning up messes other people had made. Thankfully, the back roads were clear the rest of the way, though everyone drove slower than a granny suffering from nerves, and they soon rejoined the N15 as it snaked past Ballantra and Lahi. They had nearly reached the roundabout at Little when the row of slow-moving cars came to a stop. Mary peered through the rain-streaked windscreen to see what could be causing the delay. At the far end of the line of cars, a stop-go sign seemed to be stuck on red. No cars drove down the other lane towards them. Offer, the driver muttered. Can't we turn around and go the old way into town? He rolled his eyes up to the rain clouds. Look, she said watching as people stepped out of their cars to get a better view of the reason for their delay. They know something's up. We could be stuck here half the day. If you turn around now, we can be in town in 10, 15 minutes max. The driver shook his head and reached for the box of John Player Blue he kept on the dashboard. Urgh, Mary said in frustration. What could she do but make a good suggestion and hope that people would listen? She disembarked and took the cigarette he offered. Even this made her feel old. She didn't vape, but smoked the odd real cigarette filled with real tobacco. The fella in there in the car ahead said they heard there was a serious accident up farther, with the rain. Her hair was starting to drip rain onto her forehead, and her cigarette was limp from the steady mist that fell. 
It felt as though she was damp right through to her very bones. She felt closer to 80 than 40. A flash of light caught her eye. A massive Arctic was pulling out of Little, inching its way through the car park towards the exit. Mary McGonagall wandered down the road towards the discount supermarket. She stood and watched the delivery truck navigate around the tight bend onto the hard shoulder of the N15, shivering with the damp. Aragal Town spread out beyond Little, the cathedral spire poking up above everything else with its wet roof reflecting the platinum sunlight, the cluster of phone masts on top of the old industrial school winking red and white, and golden lights glowing from the windows of the stopped cars lining the main road. It seemed to her that everything was lit up in the mist, shimmering with damp. Here was the articulated lorry. Its windows reflected the cool light like the cathedral roof. Her eyes hurt looking at them. On the path leading out of Little walked a woman, and Mary glanced at her as she passed. Her mother. She was the image of her mother. The same type of tightly set short hair, the same high cheekbones, and the exact way of pitching herself slightly forward so she seemed to be battling a perpetual wind. And for the first time in those years since her mother had started to forget, there arose an image of her mother and her sister back in the old terraced house they had first lived in here in Donegal, the little goldfish bowl before their first pet had died, everything vivid in front of her to the smallest detail. She heard the sound of her mother singing as she did the washing up. She felt as she had been then, young, attractive, full of promise, in a bright, comfortable room among her own. Joy and happiness suddenly flushed through her. She squeezed her hands tightly into fists and whispered, Mother! And she started to cry. She didn't know why. At that moment, her phone pinged. It was a notification from Tinder. Without thinking, she clicked through and saw that she had been matched with Colin. She must have swiped right that time by mistake. Seeing this, she imagined a new kind of happiness, and she locked her phone and pocketed it, thinking they were equal now, and her happiness, her optimism, was spreading light all around her so that the air seemed to glow with silver light, diffused by the soft rain to illuminate the row of cars, the paths, and the fields beyond. Her father had never run off, her mother had never lost her memory. She had never become a public servant. It was a dream she had only now awakened from. Come on, missus, get in. All at once, as if in a bad fairy tale, it vanished. The stop-go turned green, and the cars started to move. Mary McGonagall, shivering with the damp and her dreams, climbed onto the bus. The driver pulled off, and pointed the bus towards town. Here you are now, Aragal Town. We made it. First of all, who were you reading, or what kind of writers were you reading when you wrote your first short story, when you were getting into writing yourself? When I was getting into writing, at the time, I was reading Canadian short story writers. I'm originally from Canada, but I moved to Galway when I was 12. Um, I was reading Margaret Atwood's short stories, which I actually prefer to her novels, and Alice Munro. And I think 
it was the familiarity of the references and the locations that I think just really struck me because I had been reading, I think, mostly American and probably British up until that point. Few in school, in secondary school, obviously, Irish short stories as well. And the story that you read for us on the bus, it has a subtitle of After Chekhov's mm -hmm. In the Cart. So was that an inspiration or what did you mean by that? Oh, no, this was directly, this is written. I mean, if it was a song, it would be called a remix because I've parts of it I've lifted, not verbatim, but they're very much directly in response to that story. So when you told me um, that you were planning a podcast with the theme, Harnessing Your Hopes, I have a couple of stories that I've been working on that fill that theme. And I worked on them and I worked on them and I worked on them and they still weren't finished. And I had one that was six and a half thousand words. So I was trying to get that down to around 3000 words. It just wasn't happening. And I read Chekhov's In the Cart a few months ago. And it struck me because the themes were very similar to stories I was working on. And it just popped into my mind again. I thought, oh, what would happen if I took that story out and actually read it and didn't think about it too much, just wrote what's going on in, I suppose, subconsciously in my head in response to the story. And this is what happened. And I had so much fun writing it. Like, I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the process of reading Chekhov, having to think, and updating it to kind of contemporary Ireland was Contemporary West of Ireland specifically was great fun. The story is all set in one location. It's on the bus and the weather plays a big part. Were these elements of Chekhov's story that you, you know, wove into your own or did you put these in as extras? Uh, Chekhov's, there's a natural event that, that happens. The weather is pure West of Ireland. Like, I mean, yeah. the, the weather we could, I could write loads of stories that involve the weather because it's so critical to life here <laughs> that I just yeah. think people outside of Ireland, particularly the west of Ireland, because I lived in Dublin for a while and I just, you get a bit soft when you live in Dublin and you come back to the west then and you realise, no, the weather rules. Yeah. Um, so n the weather is definitely, it's particular to this story. The story switches between the exterior dialogue and then her own interior thoughts. So how did you navigate that? Was Do you have to kind of think of them separately? Do you write them separately or does it just flow? When I'm writing a story, the funny thing, it ha all flows as one, the internal or the external. And the difficulties I was having with the other stories is that that part of, them, of it wasn't flowing. The internal and the external weren't um, in sync. And in order to get a story, it, this sounds very highfalutin, but I have to get all of that in sync. And then when I get that in sync, the story sort of just happens. And that sounds very um, easy, but getting to that point is the hard part. And and when I was writing on the bus, very much it was a back and forth. So the back and forth of the internals prompting how she viewed the outside, but then also the events, thanks to the weather, prompting thoughts and and the events on the bus prompting thoughts inside. So it's very much a back and forth. So I can't, they can't be pulled apart. And literally, that is what was absolutely not working about the two stories that I had been working on prior to writing this. So that was just, a, I think that's why I had so much fun writing it, because it just all came together. And what about with the character? Do you, based on somebody you know, do you, are you one of these people who's a people watcher and you Look at people that make up a story and then it goes on further to become part of the short story. 
So I'm a magpie, I think, like most writers. So like I pick up things all over the place. I used to be a people watcher and then pandemic happened. And then I didn't do any people watching for a couple of years. So I am really short on people watching right now. So this person isn't based on really anybody. But I don't think I would base a character on one particular person. They just tend to be um, little bits and pieces of things that interest me. Normally, um, I'll end up with a character in my head who doesn't really bear any resemblance to a particular person. And they just pop in. Like, So I have a short story called Touching Fences where literally one day I was walking the low road and just out of nowhere popped in an image of a woman touching an electric fence. And from that, I got a whole character and a whole story. But they do just really pop in. But I think it's the magpie. And yes, I am a people watcher, but just not during pandemic, which has been really, really painful. And it's only coming back like now, to be honest with you. The, the whole thing of social isolation is so inhu inhuman. It is completely, oh, I don't know how anybody wrote. I didn't write. I wrote very little during the pandemic. Very, very little. And I know some people who wrote a lot and other writers who wrote nothing. And for me, it was I lost the source of my writing, which is, you know, picking up bits and pieces and people watching and people telling me stories. So, like, I'm, I'm, I love when people tell me their stories. And I don't use their stories. Like, I wouldn't go away and write a story based on what they told me. But just little things just get into my imagination and then go off somewhere new. So there's a hopeful ending. The theme of this podcast is Harness Your Hope. So how similar is your ending to Chekhov's ending? Okay, so I'm going to confess it's actually ridiculously similar. If you look if you look up, you can it's in the public domain, so you can look it up. The story is freely available online. It is ridiculously similar, but the difference that I have brought to this is really very much looking at a contemporary woman looking at her life and realizing through her imagination that she has a case to be optimistic that there is a life out there for her that she can dream of and think of and imagine. And I think in this story, I've emphasized that concept of how we can define ourselves through imagination and strengthen that in my imagining of Chekhov's story. So it's an imagining of a story about imagination, using your imagination to harness hopes. And do characters ever continue on in your imagination? Do you kind of go, oh, I want to know what happens to her next? Or would you maybe place the character in another story? Or do you have to kind of let her go and move on to the next character? So my imagination is populated by a lot of people, like a lot of people. So I will completely forget Mary for now. She may come back later. Um, I have written stories which kind of at some point I go, oh, there's more there. And I've gone back to the character. But they normally change significantly, so they end up being a new character. I'm just, Mary's going to have to live on in the imagination of readers. Okay. And um, what are your future plans, Celeste? What's next for you in terms of writing? So in terms of writing, I have a collection of poetry that I finished long before the pandemic that was due to be published the summer that the pandemic hit. So that's still on the publisher's list, along with all the other people who didn't get published during pandemic. And that is um, called I Imagine Myself. And it is, broadly speaking, a middle-aged woman looking at her life, um, but also looking at the lives of others. I like observational work, 
Um, there's a lot of humor in it and just general strangeness. I'm currently working on short stories. So this was lovely to do because I'm hopefully working towards a collection. And um, yeah, we'll see what happens with those. Okay, thanks Celeste. You're very welcome. It's been lovely. Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Celeste Auger. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council. <laughs>